to Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for Wired. I'm Laura Hudson. Uh, I'm a former culture editor at Wired, but you might know me best as the writer behind Wired's Game of Thrones recaps. And I'm Spencer Ackerman. I'm a national security reporter for the Daily Beast and formerly a senior writer for Wired. Citadel Dropouts is a conversation between two friends, Spencer and I, uh, and Game of Thrones fanatics about how the characters and stories in that world connect with this world in terms of politics, the social order, diplomacy, feminism, and war. We are not a recap podcast. As we move to the end of Game of Thrones, we're going to talk about the deeper themes of these final episodes. Our goal is not to spoil, our goal is to enrich, but if you haven't caught up with the show and you care about spoilers, you should do that before listening. Here we are, Spencer. Here we are, Laura. It's been a long, long road. And as Off With Their Head said, all things move toward their end. It's, and, and we're finally here. We're finally here. As, as some people may or may not know, we've done different iterations of this podcast at, at different places. We have pinballed around and, you know, we, we finally found ourselves here facing, facing the end. And thank you so, so much for everyone uh, who's stuck with us, despite having to migrate feeds so many times uh, through name changes um, and definitely through uh, now three different news organizations hosting us. Um, we might just want to just say a couple things about beyond what we've um, just announced, what we're here to do and what we're not here to do. I mean, as, as we said in the intro, we're not, we're not a recap podcast. Uh, if you want to know what happened, Wikipedia is there for you, too. Um, we're really more about, about what does it all mean, Spencer? I mean, that, that's sort of how I, I've been thinking a lot about this last season in terms of what, what does it all mean? You know, panning out. You know, looking at looking at the show, looking at the series. Mm -hmm. If you think about what Game of Thrones set out to do initially in terms of the books, uh, and you know, by extension, the television series, you know, I think it's easy to forget now because Game of Thrones has become the way that we think about fantasy. But Game of Thrones started out as a subversion of fantasy tropes. You know, you took Ned Stark. You know, he's the great hero. Uh, you know, he's going to have the you know the triumphant. Uh, heroic arc, and then they cut his head off. You know, um, you know, Rob Stark comes along. We think he's going to avenge his father. There's the red wedding. You know, it, it, it made a lot of hay, and, and it did a lot of interesting things with taking what we knew about fantasy and turning it on its head, often uh, through uh, horrific scenes uh, that did the very opposite of giving the audience what they wanted. What, what I think we've run into. Um, you know, over the last season or so, and, and certainly with George R. R. Martin's in, in terms of the stall in the books, is where do you go from there? You know, I, I, I think it's telling that when George R. R. Martin, if you go back and read his original pitch for the series, it essentially runs through about Storm of Swords, which is, you know, basically ends around the Red Wedding. Uh, and you or again, you've successfully upended everything. It turns out the hero doesn't win in the end. Uh, you know, it's it's not all about, you know, damsels and noble knights. And, you know, if you look back at medieval times, actually, it was super awful. But where do you go from there? When you've built a story, when you've built a series on turning things upside down and not giving people what they want, how do you end it? Do you end it in a way that continues to upend things, which I think in this context would mean things ending in some sort of dramatic, horrible way? Or do you uh, reify those fantasy tropes? Do you go back to the well 
of, of everything uh, that your story had been pushing against? And do you give people a happy ending? I, I, I don't think that there's a great answer. I mean, I think one of the challenges uh, for Game of Thrones is that it's called Game of Thrones. It's, it's a story uh, about a variety of uh, competing characters and thereby co competing political philosophies. You know, I, I think there's a lot of stories where you could get to the end and say, well, all of these characters all represent different philosophies. And that's interesting you know, like let a thousand flowers bloom, but you can't really do that here because someone has to win. And, and thereby you're, you're making some sort of statement. You're making some sort of judgment. If you go back to the beginning, you know, Ned Stark was the noble, uh, you know, prototypical fantasy hero. And, you know, the, by upending the fantasy tropes, by cutting off his head, it sent a clear message that said this sort of heroic, uh, naivete is, is unrealistic. This is not a way to govern. Um, this is how you lose the Game of Thrones. And, you know, I'm wondering as we get towards the end, you know, I think inevitably, whichever way it goes and whatever happens, it's going to be making some sort of some sort of statement. If Danny takes the Iron Throne, what does that say about her and the way that she governs and the way that Tyrion governs with her? It's going to have to make some some choices. And I think I think it's going to be hard to satisfy not only readers but you know the the sheer amount of complexity that it's built up in the background like i don't know if you've ever played mass effect uh spencer no so mass effect and i swear to god this is relevant uh is uh it's a three game long uh video game series where there's a lot of branching narratives and as you're going through it it feels so complex you're making all of these choices and you know it moves the choices move from one game to the next and you know everything feels so intricate and so influenced by what you're doing and then when you got to the end of mass effect 3 there was a massive uproar because it turned out that you know despite the hundreds of choices or whatever that you'd made in the end there were really only kind of i think three endings that you could get and there was this sense of betrayal on the part of the players where they're like there was so much complexity in all of this and then you just boiled it down to you know abc and i worry about that happening with game of thrones and that it has you know it is it has been so much about the detail it's been about you know you you touch the spider web in essos and it reverberates on the other side of westeros this sense that there was always so much going on and i worry that it's going to boil down to something blunt and something simplistic that you know might leave people feeling like kind of all of that was a ruse that that maybe none of that complexity meant anything at all do you think that by calling the show Game of Thrones, they've locked themselves uh, into something of a of a of an expectation of an of an ultimate political structure that, you know, this is going to have to end with a monarch. The monarch represents one of, you know, a choice of uh, competing conceptions of monarchy. But ultimately, there's a throne at the end of this uh, series. I mean, there's a winner. It's a game. You know, even if, I, you know, I'm going to just blue sky this right here. Let's say, I don't know, you know, John takes the throne and decides he's going to institute some sort of democratic, you know, institution, some sort of, you know, uh, Westerosi parliament. It's still saying, in a sense, that John won, that the way that John approaches politics, that the way that he approaches war and conflict, to some degree, he's won to even be able to make that choice. Game of Thrones requires a winner maybe some joint winners, 
but it requires someone to win. And by its extension, it's going to it's going to make a statement about what's militarily successful, about what's politically successful uh, and, you know, how that interacts potentially with morality. So that's a good jumping off point. Um, We are not in the spirit of how we're not going to recap stuff. uh, We're not also going to add to the uh, the glut of content. That's just here's what happened on, you know, here's what you have to know uh, to get caught up with uh, with Game of Thrones season eight. You know, maybe it's worth, you know, looking instead at not just kind of how we've gotten where we are, um, but what the stakes are thematically um, for the the, the storylines that we're interested in following in. Um, and, you know, probably the, you know, the most significant, certainly the one that, that I have the most questions about what it actually represents uh, is with Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, yeah, Daenerys, whose name I have finally learned how to pronounce. No, don't concede uh, that. The people who criticized you are wrong. We're all reading a made-up word, a made-up name off of a book. Their interpretations are no more legitimate than yours. Fuck that. I, you know, I certainly wouldn't suggest that it actually makes me a bigger geek than them, <laughs> that I just, you know, so exclusively read the books that I invented my own conception of the pronunciation, you know, as opposed to going with the crowd. I'd never suggest that. In any case, I think it's pretty clear that Danny has been set up as the front runner to take to take on the throne, essentially, um, you know, both in terms of the heritage of her family and the fact that the most significant military and narrative event of you know the last several seasons is her bringing the dragons to Westeros. That's what we waited for forever. That's what we're still waiting for if you're a book reader. And, you know, we've seen a lot of complicated things happen with Danny. Uh, sometimes I think it's easy to forget she, like, crucified 150 people once. That happened. Uh, you know, we were certainly presented with this notion that she has this, you know, quote unquote, Targaryen madness potentially in her blood that needs to be tempered uh, by Tyrion and potentially by Jon. You know, I, so I, I, I think if we're thinking about the competing political philosophies that are being set up at this point. Okay, so who do we have? We have Danny, who, you know, is sort of like a um, an iron fist in a velvet glove to some degree. Uh, and we have Cersei, uh, who is uh, brutal and unforgiving and uh, concerned only with herself and even with Jamie, some extension of herself. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, if there's anyone else really who's a contender at this point. It's just them, right? Well, let's just take Danny for a second, just because um, she's really, you know, as the challenger, the fascinating one. Um, and particularly because she sets out to make a case for herself uh, for why her rule represents something, you know, that could be reform, that could be revolution. She has that famous line that she's not here um, to turn the wheel, that she's here to break the wheel. And for three years since she said that, we've been trying to figure out what that actually means, what that requires of her, um, how thoroughly she is willing to take this critique. Um, and I don't feel maybe you disagree that we're anywhere closer to an answer. I don't I don't know what the Targaryen restoration is for. I don't know that she knows either. I think, you know, she makes a lot of claims, certainly on the history of her family. 
Um, but you know, I, I feel like that sort of lineage, sort of like all laws, is just kind of made up. If you have read Fire and Blood, the unnecessarily extensive George R. R. Martin book about uh, the reign of the Targaryens, there were people reigning before them too. You know, making that appeal to the past is just as made up as, as anything else. Uh, she's certainly doing it, but she's also making another appeal, which is the moral appeal which is, you know, she will liberate the slaves, uh, you know, she will make these, you know, vast uh, and, and generous gestures uh, that make people somehow freer and happier and, you know, remove them from the boot of their oppressors. But I, there's something that's observed, I, I believe, at some point in the show. Uh, the Daenerys, like her family before her, they're conquerors. They're a lot better at conquering than they are at ruling. And if you read Fire and Blood, which I certainly did for hundreds of pages, you see that, again, the Targaryens were great at conquering, but when it came to ruling, things kind of fell apart. So, you know, I think if she does take the throne, I think that will be the bigger question. Like, congratulations, you've got it now. Same thing happened with Robert Baratheon, great at conquering. Once he got into office, he... office. <laughs> Once he took the throne, he didn't really know what to do because that's a much more nuanced uh political you're, you're then you're getting into the sphere of Littlefinger and Varys and and Tyrion you know and, and that's a it's a fundamentally different game and that's where you have to work out the reality of you know I'm not just gonna light all the slave masters on fire that's a great thing to do but how do you deal with the day-to-day -day reality of, of people's lives once you freed them from their masters. Okay, you're free now. Does it mean that you're not starving? Does it mean that you have opportunity? Does it mean that you have political representation? What does that mean? I, I think it's saying, I will break the wheel. That might as well be her campaign slogan. It's pie in the sky and it sounds great, but it doesn't mean anything. In a Westerosi context where there isn't a slave society to contend with, again, we don't know what breaking the wheel means. Uh, we don't know, are we in Paris in 1789? Uh, are we in Paris in, you know, in 1792 and it's a republic? Are we in Paris for an aristocratic bourgeois revanchism, um, like from 1795 to 1799? You know, Is Danny this, you know, figure of conquest who's there for some kind of, you know, vague uh, bourgeois and republican light agenda, like, you know, Napoleon in France from like 1799 to, to 1814? Are, are we in something, you know, that looks more like uh, a liberal's restoration uh, of an old aristocratic regime? So like France in 1830? Are we looking at an insurrection that's focused not only on destroying uh, the existing political order, but the existing social order? As, as you observed, when we were doing our our first season, Game of Thrones, the sixth season, we were moving into what looks a lot more like like a a series of of political arrangements dominated by women, but still nevertheless in a patriarchal context. Fundamentally, are we you know in Paris in in eighteen seventy one for something um, that's more of a of a so uh, of an attempt at a social change, even before we get uh, into the challenges. Of governing, I don't really understand what the the basic project is. She's Beto O'Rourke with dragons. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good description. And you know, again, I don't even think there's a notion that she's quote unquote liberating Westeros. 
in the same way that, you know, she liberated the slaves in Essos because, you know, there's something fundamentally different going on. Certainly what they call the small folk of Westeros are oppressed. They're not oppressed by slavery. Uh, they're oppressed by larger econ economic inequality. You know, a lot of it's generated by um, military conflict. You know, it, I, there's a couple points in the show or in the book where they talk about how, you know, once the War of the Seven Kings gets going, their lives are horrific chaos. You know, like not only could they potentially be killed or murdered at any time by anyone under any number of banners, but, you know, it's, you know, anything they grow or cultivate could be stolen from them. I think at this point, the, the freedom that the small folk are really looking for is just, you know, freedom from, from pain, freedom from war. Uh, and that's a philosophy, you know, it certainly happened in the seven kingdoms before that someone brings enough peace that you can basically live your life without constantly worrying that like you're going to be stabbed and raped. Um, but again, I don't think that that's necessarily an enduring or defining political philosophy. It's not, it's not wheel breaking, shall we say you won't get murdered in your bed is not like. I think the, the revolutionary concept that Daenerys is promising by saying that she will break the wheel. Um, and here's the question, too, is, you know, who's to say that the show will even reckon with that stuff at all? Maybe it ends. She gets on the throne. We pan out. The Game of Thrones music plays. We never address it. Other things we don't address. What happened to Essos? This incredibly complex place where all the masters were trying to take back slavery and she kind of bailed on it. I, yada, 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 everything's fine. Are those things that we will ever or could we ever deal with? Well, I think that, you know, while being agnostic uh, to, you know, however it is the show gets there and, and, and where it places certain characters and, you know, who gets killed and who survives, the show is going to succeed, I think, you know, in, in, in reaching its conclusion satisfactorily, you know, to the degree and in proportion to... Uh, its willingness to make an argument about what the right way of ordering this society is. And by contrast, you know, conversely, if it doesn't do that and it's just this person with this vague agenda has won, then it won't like it won't what, you know, even if it might be narratively satisfying or, you know, poetic in um invoking uh some of the you know initial places various characters were and what they went through um it still won't won't feel like it reached its its potential and i think also you know given the way the show and the books have really tried to put in its complexity arguments about social and political power uh their ends and their consequences on the table um then the levels of satisfaction is gonna you know i think you know and and certainly um this you know will will tell you if this is the podcast for you or if it's not they're going to increase with how far left uh this show is willing to envision uh what a just society looks like you know both at the end of this conflict and while facing uh, a catastrophic um an existential circumstance um from an from an external threat or phenomenon that um, politics, at least, is demonstrated over the course of the show and in real life uh, that it's just not prepared to address. Um, so are we going to get, you know, a kind of weak need centrist or, or vague liberal uh, solution? Are we going to actually 
you know, get our, our, you know, lefteros and see something um, that doesn't just sort of play at uh, looking at the way this world is endured by people without uh, without advantage, people who, who represent, you know, the, the perhaps pre-industrial working classes of this society every now and again as characters as a way of making a point about the centrality of, of aristocratic rulers. Or are we going to actually do away with all of that? And, you know, the purpose of, of this kind of remnant monarchy uh, is to basically, you know, bring the people their dragons. Yeah, I mean, pulling back for a second, I feel like what we're talking about and maybe what we're going to be talking about on this podcast the entire season, and, you know, there may be some people who like this more than not, is we're going to be talking about taking Game of Thrones seriously. And we take Game of Thrones very seriously. And Game of Thrones is a series that asks to be taken seriously in the way that it approaches politics, in the way that it approaches narrative. It, it, it demands it. And I think that, you know, what we're asking it to do is cash the check it wrote. Um, and I think the question is, you know, can it do that? A again, so Game of Thrones as a series that upended fantasy tropes made to some degree a political statement that the sort of idealism you typically see in fantasy novels, uh, you know, transposed into a more realistic medieval society and political structure uh, is dangerously naive and doomed to failure. And I would add toxic that for, for, for the vast majority of not only the characters that we focus on, uh, but for those who have to endure the machinations of the Game of Thrones, uh, this culture, this this highly personalized uh, and limited, constrained array of power and wealth, is toxic. That it destroys you. That that it 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 hollows out these societies just enough for someone to temporarily uh, take a place at the top of a of a bankrupt social structure. And you know, with our you know encroaching army of zombies, uh, you know, perhaps representing you know catastrophic climate change. We, we see especially how that sort of hidebound uh, political and social structure is completely unprepared uh, to deal with something that truly does threaten everyone. Yeah, but I, I also think there's something else in there, which is, you know, it's sort of the sort of almost nihilistic sense that, you know, these structures are inevitable. Yes. Right? Yes. That, that Ned, Ned, Ned Stark, through his idealism, could not transform them, and that he was naive to ignore uh, the brutality and the manipulation and the, you know, inherent cruelty of these structures and the human beings within them. So then there becomes the question of, you know, is the best we can do politically to figure out how to and ne negotiate these horrific structures often through tremendous personal and moral compromise or is there another way you know you, we were talking before about looking around at all of these institutions you know seeing you know sansa and and danny and all of these women at, at at the peak of power which are you know traditionally patriarchal structures hierarchical structures structures that cause a lot of harm uh, to people um, in social economic gender terms if you don't happen to be on top and that question comes up in feminism a lot is it you know is it enough to get power for yourself within these institutions or is what we're really shooting for tearing them down and transforming them into something more equitable so we get to the end of this and when Danny talks about breaking the wheel 
what does that what does that mean? Does that mean that in the end we're going to discover that, you know, capitulating to the idea that the best we can do is find some way to work around uh, how horrific these structures are to have for a brief time a figurehead that doesn't use them uh, as quite as much of a cudgel uh, to beat the people beneath them. Or is it going to be something more transformative than that? Because I think Daenerys taking the throne and being pretty nice for the rest of her reign, that's not breaking the wheel. It isn't. And, and so in the end, and it, is it going to be a capitulation to that, that, that nihilism? Or is it going to be the sense that there is something beyond being naive or being cynical? That there is a third way? I... I I think that that would be an interesting answer. I think talking about what the show, you know, quote unquote, should do, whether we're talking about personal satisfaction, whether we're talking about uh, narrative, you know, uh, honesty or or uh, a sense that it's 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 speaking to or completing uh, or answering the questions that it's raised or a couple of different things. But I think that that could potentially be the most interesting thing it could say. Something else. I mean, I'm I'm. Curious to see if the show will explore uh, is the consequence of uh, this Targaryen um, restoration being explicitly uh, multicultural and um, have having a heavy a heavy element from from the the perspective of the the political arrangement she's seeking to rule foreign. We got to see with with uh, the Randall Tarley character an avatar for a nativist argument, an avatar for um, for saying that what whatever it is about um, the existing structure uh, that I might find um, distasteful, the fact of the matter is it's not foreign, uh, and so I'm going to to ride with that. And then you know he you know said you know MAGA and then got burned alive for that. I'm I am curious to see if. You know, now that they're going to reckon with with that, the Targaryen coalition, you know, includes these warriors um, in the Dothraki that, you know, the Westerosi think of uh, as savage and also an army of eunuch soldiers, an army of of, of non-men uh, in a way that the uh, the existing structure like doesn't quite know what to do with from a gendered perspective to the degree to which that, you know, will will be dealt with. As as something that uh, various aspects of the of the, I guess what you would have to call in this case the ancien regime will reckon with or not, or or if they're just going to you know somehow pretend that you know everyone's just going to be cool with this massive transformation of the social order, you know, and we you know we saw this when when you know Jon Snow um, informed the Night Watch the Night's Watch that. Uh, it was now also going to be open to the free folk, um, which we know was the right thing to do. We know was the sensible thing to do. Um, but nevertheless, and I think the show got, you know, the show appropriately took seriously that this would meet with violent resistance, that uh, revanchism is a very real political thing and has to be dealt with. Are we going to see, you know, Danny, you know, use these dragons as a guillotine? I mean, we've already seen her do it once, right? 
we, we've already seen her use her, her dragons to execute people. Uh, but I, I think that the nativist argument is a really interesting one because, uh, you know, because there's so much appeal with the Targaryens, you know, to their, you know, long, you know, history of uh, reigning over Westeros, I think it's easy to forget that they were invaders and that to some degree, they always remained somewhat foreign. They came from Valyria. They escaped it shortly before the doom. And yeah, they ruled Westeros for 400-ish years, but they were always kind of apart. You know, they had their silver hair, their purple eyes, and most of all, their dragons. That's how they were able to be a small but powerful ruling class over, you know, a fundamentally different populace. And, you know, I, I think that we're seeing other sorts of, you know, quote unquote, foreign invasion. We're seeing it with the Free Folk. We're seeing it with the Dothraki, a literal invading barbarian horde. I mean, I can say that I would be a little concerned that a large horde of uh, horse warlords known for a raping and a pillaging uh, had entered Westeros. I can see some integration difficulties there. What's what's that going to mean? What's it going to mean for the free folk to come in? Something that occurred to me again. You have a much much better sense of political and military history than I do, Spencer. Is that um, you know I believe uh, part of the assassination of Julius Caesar occurred when he was making efforts to increase uh, representation uh, of foreign territories within the Senate. That he was, you know, bringing in uh, figures and giving real political representation to groups, you know, outside of Rome, and that that's something people found fundamentally threatening. Not, not that, oh God, I'm like George R. R. Martin should write another book, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I think you're looking a hundred years down the road from whoever ends up on the throne, that would be truly interesting because, you know, I think that this sort of integration uh, is going to be messy and uncomfortable and potentially violent. So you've pulled my card. I should know uh, about the assassination of Caesar uh, politically, and I don't. Uh, Mike Duncan, I promise I am going to read The Storm Before the Storm. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I don't need this show to reflect my particular politics back at me. I don't think HBO would ever let, um, you know, Game of Thrones go that left. Um, but I do want to see the real issues that they are bringing up, uh, the the wellspring of what has so tragically and historically proven to be real conflict. We are we're living in the United States through, you know, a very real and very dangerous nativist hysteria that's, you know, as we've been seeing, is very, very proximate to violence. Will the show at least address that? Will it consider it a subject that it has to to go into allegorically, or is it just going to kind of leave us with a world in which, well, you know, it was sensible of everyone to unite and beat the zombies, so we recognize that we're all still living and we're all, you know, we're all still people and all lives matter, right? Or is it actually going to address the very real iniquities that it spent eight, that it spent seven seasons establishing as the kind of you know background context? for everything that we see unfold. And again, I'm left just not really knowing where they want to take their politics um, and where they have room to take their politics, you know, let alone what's going to happen to, you know, character, you know, X, Y, and Z, which I think is a kind of, you know, 
to to me at least less less captivating question. I mean, I can tell you where I don't want it to go. Mm. So, for example, I I think you know dealing with the notion of diverse groups of people entering Westeros, figuring out how to integrate. Uh, people's fears around that. I think that would be interesting, certainly, especially around the Unsullied or the Free Folk. Uh, what I wouldn't love to see is a political analogy about uh, a wall coming down and a land being invaded by uh, soulless murdering zombies. Mm-hmm. I'd like to steer away from that. That's not just because there's a wall doesn't mean we have to do that. I think we can stay away from that one. There's much more, much more interesting... Uh, uh, depths to plumb elsewhere. Walls work, Laura. Not when you got an ice dragon, they don't. <laughs> yes, it really does seem like um, uh, the left side of the Game of Thrones fandom was very invested in in seeing the uh, the White Walkers as climate change, mm-hmm. uh, whereas uh, there's there's been what perhaps you know the the rightward edge of the of the fandom uh, might have have latched onto. Um, much more deeply, which is just the existence of this wall, even though we've already seen um, that, you know, the right thing to do was let people through the wall. You know, that was the right thing. And uh, the person who did that right thing uh, was betrayed and iniquitously uh, murdered by people who didn't quite really get the circumstances that they were in fact confronting. So now that we know that we want to, you know, see these themes that uh, the show has developed for all of this time that we've we've um, been so dedicated to, for now a substantial chunk of our lives, I guess the you know the circumstance that we we might want to confront, you know, as a podcast that that seeks to treat this fandom uh, like the adults uh, that hopefully we all are, we left you and I the back half of Game of Thrones season seven feeling like we were pretty pretty done with this that um we may have been devoted to it uh for a long time but it 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 might have passed the point of being good so uh what do you think i mean obviously we have a certain uh conclusion that that um exists simply by the fact of us doing this podcast uh but i think it's worth spending a little bit of time asking is this worth it such a good question. In in every relationship, there comes a point yes. where you have to ask yourself, is this worth it? Uh, I just did a little quick math on my computer and saw that I've spent roughly uh, 20% of my entire life, certainly more of my adult life, spending about uh, two months a year, every week, spending most of a day uh, fixating on and talking about and, and writing about this series. You know, it's funny, I went back and I, I was doing a, a bit of a rewatch uh, with a couple people uh, on my, my recent road trip, and I went back to season three. I don't know if you remember this, Spencer. Season three is really good. Oh, it's great. It's, it's the, fantastic. The, 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 sen- the sense of drama, the way that it's developed, the way that it's adapted, it's, it, was, it was transfixing. The way it was paced. The way it's paced, it's you can see why you got obsessed. Same thing. You go back to the books. Uh, you read the first three books. You see why you got obsessed. Again, you know, I, I don't think it's an accident that you know George R. R. Martin's initial pitch was the first three books. They're the strongest, and then it kind of starts to lose the plot. But you know, why why are why are we back here? <laughs> because there was something in here once uh, that we loved, that we gave a lot of ourselves to, and you know, I I do still think there could potentially be something in there that, that this season could have something to give us um, that, you know, if 
even if it doesn't necessarily live up to the heights of the series, you know, still has value, is, is, is still gratifying and interesting and interesting in the context of, you know, the years and years of story and character and emotion uh, that we've invested in. And I mean, come on, man, like, you think you're not going to show up for the end to at least see? So the way I've been kind of conceptualizing this to myself is that season eight of Game of Thrones feels like going to my ex's funeral. Oh, we uh, we shared something that was important to us. And for one reason or another, it didn't work out. It 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 couldn't survive. But I I both cherish and honor that memory, and also in a kind of you know voyeuristic sense, there's probably going to be some shit happening at this funeral that I'm I'm just going to want to see. Um, there'll be some drama amongst the other people who knew my so, ex. Someone's going to try to throw themselves in, inside the grave. Yeah, right. Like, have to get pulled back. Something like that is is going to happen. But also, like, there is a sense as well of of obligation of 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 seeing this thing through um, that doesn't often lend itself to genuine feeling, and certainly, you know, not you know genuine enjoyment. Um, but there have been, you know, so many things about um, about this world that I've cherished. You're a friend who I cherish. We wouldn't have met, I don't think, really. We certainly wouldn't have started talking to one another when we both worked at Wired. Were it not for this show, you edited some pieces of mine about this show that I think, if I'm remembering correctly, was kind of like how we started talking as people. So, like, there, there, are, there are good things that, um, that this thing has meant, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if... I'm not really so confident that season eight is going to be that great and I might not need it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's the relationship analogy, again, is is really resonant with me because my investment in this is, is stronger than I would say, you know, 0.01% of the population personally, professionally, emotionally. Um, it, it's funny, I'm looking back at a Game of Thrones recap I wrote for Wired, uh, season seven, episode seven, which I uh, subtitled, uh, the show that just uh, ghosted us. <laughs> and I'll, I'll read from the opening paragraph, Spencer. There's a series of questions that every person asks themselves when a relationship falls apart. Why did this happen? What could have been done differently? How did we end up here after everything we shared? And then the most fundamental question, the one that holds itself up to your eye like a magnifying glass in the sun. Why did I love you in the first place? There is no single answer to this question that will resonate for every person, every situation. But the most universal answer, the one that speaks most powerfully and broadly to everyone's heart, is also the simplest. I believed in you. Ooh. Ooh. If you go back and read that, you can like what you can watch my heart break in real time. I, my my heart just broke all over again. I, and, but you know that was that was the moment that was the moment of the breakup, Spencer. That's so real, Laura. That was so real. There's that moment when you realize that the person you love, you're not going to end up together forever. That this isn't going to turn out exactly the way that you want. Let's put it that way. That's the best analogy. This this may not turn out the way that you want, but it doesn't mean you get, you get away from the pain. You, you, you accept things for what they are and you realize that doesn't mean that what came before has no value. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I think there's tremendous value to what came before. Um, and I, I think the question now is, you know, we know the end is coming. Um, 
to some degree, we're moving out. We're putting our things in boxes. Uh, it, regardless of how you look at it, we're going to separate. Not you and I, Spencer. We're friends forever. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, but we as the audience is, is preparing to separate from the show. And, you know, I, I think it's about, to some degree, you know, how satisfying this end is and, and how close it is to what we expected. And I think that there can still be an interesting, satisfying, complex ending that allows us that allows us to walk away from this show feeling a sense of closure. Now, when you think back about other media experiences that you've had, it's possible to have an ending so bad that it taints the entire show. It's possible to have a breakup so bad that it overshadows, uh, you know, many years of satisfying relationships. We can look at Mass Effect. We can look at Lost. We can look at unspecified relationships of mine from the last several years. (laughs) Um, It's possible to do that. You know, I I think a more mature perspective is to be able to look back and, and and find that value in the things that came before. And so what I'd really like, if we want to talk about what we want, I've talked about what I want narratively, what I want personally, what I want emotionally, is an ending that, that, that feels true enough that it gives me closure, that it, it leaves me feeling like, even though it, it's, it's time to go our separate ways and you may not have been everything I wanted in the end, uh, that I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad we spent this time together. So I can't top that. I guess what, uh, we will be doing is we'll, we'll be willing to scroll through our photos with our ex and, and, and live in those memories, even as we're, you know, heading up to the dais to, you know, perform the, the ill-considered task of speaking at our ex's funeral. And I think we've probably uh, strained that analogy to the breaking point. Uh, I, I, I got miles to go, Spencer. We got a whole season ahead of us. You know, I got told by, uh, by a friend of mine um, who, is, who is, you know, talking about the podcast, sort of saying that, um, you know, this, this negativity that we have isn't going to, you know, go over so well. It makes it a, a hard proposition for the Game of Thrones podcast listener. And I'm willing to bet that's not true. I am I'm, you know, willing to bet having had some of these conversations with people in the Game of Thrones fandom that there's space here for people who have been devoted to this thing but who recognize uh it may not be such an, you know, at the very minimum, you know, unadulterated um good thing um that this show might might have worn out its welcome a while ago um, or might have less to say um, than it gestures at, I'm willing to bet you, listener, are there. It might not be everyone who's listening to this you know, episode right now, but I am willing to bet that there are people here who don't want to just have enthusiasm reflected back at them. I've, I've been a, a professional media critic for a really long time and a misconception that I've run into a lot. And I, I've seen this even in the comments of my Game of Thrones recaps, where I would, I would say something critical and someone would show up and just be like, well, if you don't like it, then don't watch the show. And it's like, well, no, I'm going to watch the show because I love the show. I'm obsessed with the show. I'm obsessed with the series. I know, you know, I've forgotten more about it than you probably know about it. Like, I love it. Yeah. But what, what is love, Spencer? 
whoa, 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 whoa. Love is not, you know, having uncritical enthusiasm for something. You know, I, I think if you really love something, you're, you're willing to criticize it. You're willing to see the flaws in it because, you know, that's, you know, to, to have a clear eyed approach to the things that you love, to see the flaws in them and love them anyway. I actually think that's more powerful than putting on blinders and pretending that something doesn't have problems. And by the way, like if, you know, like I, you know, I passed the point in my career where I get any satisfaction or anything but psychic pain out of, you know, hating on something for the sake of it. I don't have time for that. Yeah, that's a juvenile impulse. I'm too old for this crap. Um, you know, you and I are here and we're here for a reason and, you know, we're here to take this seriously. And, and, and that might mean us saying things that make us uncomfortable and hurt our hearts. And I hope that, you know, there's less of that than more of that. But, you know, I love this series and I'm, I'm going to be honest about it as, as, we, as we come to a close. And I'm sure you are as well. And I, I hope a lot of other people want to take that ride with us. Yes, the Citadel Dropouts is not here for any of this love it or leave it bullshit. We live in Westeros too. We are also, if you're coming to us new, the rare Game of Thrones podcast, I, I hesitate to say the only one, uh, but the rare Game of Thrones podcast that will be in your feed every Monday morning following uh, the final six episodes. By the time your morning commute rolls around, when you're probably maximally interested uh, in talking about or, or thinking about uh, the episode that you just watched, uh, we will be here for you in your feeds. We hope this is at least enough of a, of a competitive advantage uh, that we start out shaping the Game of Thrones conversation early in the week. Uh, and uh, the podcast will be in your feeds. Uh, I will be asleep if you want to yell at me because I will be up all night doing podcasts and recaps for Wired, giving you that sweet, sweet content. Uh, but please enjoy on your drive to the office in the morning. If you haven't already, subscribe to us online. We're at the Citadel Dropouts on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on all podcasting platforms through Wired's feed. We'll make this super easy. Um, and if you have a minute and like the show, leave us a review, please. Uh, Citadel Dropouts was produced by Jeremy Dalmas. I'm Spencer Ackerman. I'm Laura Hudson. And we'll be back next Monday. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.